Hello and welcome to episode 9 of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm education writer and Mr. Tumnus stand-in, Charles Goff. And I'm YouTuber and part-time water nymph, Phil Coleman. And during this lockdown, we'll be trying to hold off the desire to overthrow the government by sticking on our film geek fur coats and heading through the wardrobe into the magical land of Narnia, specifically focusing on 2005's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. We'll be looking at the issue of allegory, the attractiveness of evil, and the proper way to treat traitors. Phil, which Narnia story is your favourite? My favourite Narnia story is actually The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. It's the only one that I've really that familiar with. I ended up reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in primary school, but that was the only time I read it, and mm-hmm. I don't really remember it. <laughs> but um, I just, I've just watched the film now as well. I had flashbacks to when I was in primary school thinking like, you know what? I really liked this world. Mm. Why did I never sort of delve more into it? I remember when I was in primary school as well, I painted Mr. Tumnus with Lucy. You know, that first little scene where yeah. it's in Mr. Tumnus's house. I remember getting a lot of praise from the teacher saying like, wow, that's actually very good, Phil. Mm. Whether it was a good painting or not, I don't know because <laughs> I don't remember where that painting went. I think for me, it has to be The Magician's Nephew. I remember reading this when I was about 11 and for me, I think it was the first example of a prequel that I'd come across and I just found it fascinating finding out how Narnia came into being. Now, we're going to put a disclaimer into our programme. While some texts become richer the more you dig into them, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe isn't one of them. C.S. Lewis's anarchic world building can start to look flimsy if you look at it too closely. And that's okay. It's a children's story. And a story's logic only has to hold together for the length of the time it takes to entertain you. That being said, if there's anyone listening who is under 10, maybe skip this pod and come back to it. Narnia is a magical world. And if you're still young enough to appreciate magic, you should keep it that way. My grandma encouraged my reading from an early age, and she introduced us to the Chronicles of Narnia by showing us the 1988 BBC version on video. She later got me the complete Chronicles of Narnia, and I burned through everyone. So for me, Narnia represents a halcyon time of innocence, family, cohesion, and most importantly, my grandma. That's so sweet. Thank you. So without further ado, let's hear Phil's facts. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch and The Wardrobe. It's a 2005 fantasy film co-written and directed by Andrew Adamson and is based on the the novel by C.S. Lewis of the same name. Four British children are evacuated join the Blitz to the countryside who find a wardrobe that leads them to the fantasy world of Narnia. There, they ally with the lion Aslan, voiced by Liam Neeson, against the forces of Jadis, the White Witch played by Tilda Swinton. Georgie Henley's reaction to Mr. Tumnus at the lamppost is genuine. She had not seen her castmate James McAvoy in his costume before the scene was filmed, so her screams and reaction were real. Georgie's first reaction to the snowy world of Narnia is also genuine. She was carried into the set blindfolded to make her first entrance, so her wide-eyed, delighted reaction to it all are all entirely her own. That's fantastic. When the adult swearing got out of hand on set, Georgie Henley set up a swear bucket. James McAvoy was supposedly the worst offender. <laughs> On their first day of filming in New Zealand together, James, at 26 at the time, admitted, and he says, I'd been crying all day for this scene, and I had a cold. I was wearing a gelatin nose to make my nostrils look like a goat. There was snot because of the cold, then I was crying, so there was extra snot building up in there. My nose started to melt, and I pushed it back on with my finger, and it came off. And I went, F it, right in this eight-year-old's face. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, James. 
I've just got to remember there's kids around sometimes, yeah. you know what I mean? See, I'm trained as a teacher, so I have learned how not to swear around children, particularly when they really, really deserve it. So I've, you have to really sort of <laughs> tamp down those emotions really hard. I, I will learn. Mm. That's all I'm saying on that. No real lions were used for the film, simply because Andrew Adamson wanted the moment where Georgie Henley could reach out and touch Aslan. It took approximately 10 hours to render each frame of the CGI Aslan and his 5.2 million individual hairs and the battle scenes took just as long because of all the centaurs. It's 15 years old now but I think the CGI holds up pretty well. For I me it was one of the, it's one of the first ones where you could see the individual hairs moving because of the, the wind and I just found myself thinking what amazing attention to detail that was and how fantastic it would be. I was quite blown away. There's some really really nice shots in there. Guillermo del Toro was asked to direct the movie but he turned it down because as a lapsed Catholic, he couldn't see himself bringing Aslan the Lion back to life. So Guillermo del Toro was quoted as saying that I didn't want the lion to be resurrected. Hmm. I really enjoy the uncertainty of a guy or a creature going to die for something without knowing if there's anyone to bail him out. What's beautiful about the death of Jesus is him saying to his father, why have you forsaken me? That incredibly mysterious and moving passage is so precious because he doesn't know. That, and I also didn't want Father Christmas on my call sheet. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting because obviously Jesus did know that he was going to die and that he was also, he also knew that he was coming back. He says, I'll destroy this temple and three days later I'll build it back up again. I can't remember the exact Bible mm. verse. Jesus obviously knew what was happening. I think the thing to remember is that yes, he does know he's coming back, but dying still hurts. Even if it was a painless death, it's very frightening, I imagine. The idea of it scares me at least. One of the ideas is that Jesus, to sort of completely fulfill that substitution is the idea that Jesus went to hell when he was killed. Okay. There's imagery about him taking the keys from hell uh, off Satan and stuff like that. I don't know if it's a direct Bible verse or whether it's borders on Christian headcanon. The thing I wanted to think about was that he was gone for less than three days our time. He dies on the Friday, he's back on the Sunday. I don't think hell necessarily works at the same time scale as us. So he might have been gone not. In the same yeah, way that Narnia he, doesn't work work on the same time scale. <laughs> yeah, he might have been gone for a weekend our time. It could have been much, much longer his time. So yes, he knew he was coming back, but I still think that takes a lot of bravery. I don't think that negates the sacrifice. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I do understand where Guillermo del Toro is coming from, but mm. hearing what you've said as well, I feel as though yeah. he may have misunderstood or not interpreted correctly, maybe, if he was, yeah, if he was, Guillermo... if he was relating it back to the biblical text. Guillermo's not wrong. There is more dramatic tension for, of a, with a character sacrificing themselves mm. if they don't know that they're going to be okay. But I feel like this is the one exception to the rule where it's still it's still fine. Anyway, let's crack on. Throughout the film, Peter and Edmund are referred to sons of Adam and Lucy is referred to as a daughter of Eve. These are reference, references to the biblical Adam and Eve, which to be fair, now yeah. I read it out, it seems quite obvious. Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I, was I was reading it out and just thinking like, is this really... Is this really trivia? <laughs> <laughs> but, oh well. <laughs> now I know. Now I know. Co-producer Douglas Gresham's voice is heard early in the film as a radio announcer giving the news of the German bombings in London. Gresham is C.S. Lewis's stepson and the executor oh, of his wow. estate, who manages the rights to all the Narnia books. Oh, that is awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, brilliant. no, I had no idea either. Observant viewers will note that the images on the titular wardrobe are scenes from The Magician's Nephew, the prequel to the original novel. I did not know this. Yeah. 
I am going to go back and freeze frame everything in there to see it. That's fantastic. You want to make sure you get the uh, HD version for that, right? The wardrobe, canonically, is made from a tree, and the seeds for the tree came from Narnia. So the professor in, in Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, when he is a boy, yeah. he's the central protagonist of Magician's Nephew. And there's this brilliant bit about how they he planted this tree with these Narnian seeds, and how the tree would sometimes sway in the wind when there was no wind around you know and it was because it was windy in Narnia that sort of thing and that when it sort of collapsed they took the tree and used the timbers for it to make the wardrobe oh well that'll explain why it becomes a teleporter then yeah (laughs) Uh, only an occasional teleporter yeah yeah it seems to uh... just decide whenever it wants to be a teleporter the the guys in Star Trek would not stand for that they would not (laughs) they they would be done with that nonsense they'd be there like how on earth are we meant to get to SETI 4 now because they're all northern, obviously. Anyway, I've only got oh, one last. Yeah. Uh, I've got one last bit of trivia for you. Brian Cox was originally cast as the voice of Aslan, but left due to really? scheduling conflicts. Also, oh. Gerard Butler was in the running to originally voice Aslan, but when he auditioned for it, he asked, "This isn't going to be like the BBC puppet Aslan, is it? If because if so, I'm leaving right now." <laughs> I don't know why he was so against that. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you cannot do a Gerard Butler voice with your Warrington accent. I know, you know, I you've mean, got to go. You've got to go deep down in the Scottish accent. Like this isn't like the Aslan in the BBC version, is it? You know, this isn't going to be like the BBC puppet Aslan, right? Because if so, <laughs> yeah. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to bring the whole roof down on you lot. Yeah, I can imagine it. <laughs> I'm channeling my, my butler, you know. I didn't want to do the Scottish accent in case anyone Scottish listeners decided to come and burn my house down or something. So, I mean, that's always a risk with the I, Scottish accent. This is it, right? Those were fantastic, Phil. They really made me smile. Awesome. So today, we actually have our first returning guest. I was delighted to speak to friend of the show. I've always wanted to use that phrase. <laughs> Robbie Titchener. Hey! Welcome back, Robbie. Kia ora. My name is Robbie. You've had me on before. I was on the Lord of the Rings one because I was an extra on that. I met you, Giles, in summer camp in America in 2006, I think. 2005. Okay. The Mm -hmm. New Zealand summer before I went back to summer camp in America, I was working on another movie, which was The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe down in Christchurch, down in the South Islands. Fantastic. Robbie, it is brilliant to have such a uh, devoted friend of the show back on again. So I'm just going to dive into some questions. Uh, First of all, how familiar were you with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe before filming began? A lot more familiar than I was with Lord of the Rings. You know, I'd read the, the whole series multiple times. A lot easier and quicker to read than Lord of the Rings. It's a world that you can easily lose yourself into. And so working on the movies was, of course, a you know, fantastic opportunity. I can believe that. And did you work on just uh, Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe or did you work on the other any others? Just the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I think the other movies, um, as far as I can remember, they weren't shot in New Zealand. Was the atmosphere different in any way to Lord of the Rings? Yeah, very different. Um, Lord of the Rings, obviously a much, much bigger production. So uh, Lion, Witch, Wardrobe was a lot smaller scale, but also we were shooting down in the, in the Southern Alps, down in the South Island. It was two, oh, hours, okay. two hours bus drive to and from set each day. We were right out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, beautiful, beautiful scenery. You had the, the hills, the mountains covered in snow. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more relaxed. You know, Lord of the Rings, there was a lot of secrecy about it. On Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe, a lot more relaxed. You could, you know, 
as long as you didn't make take too many photos, they didn't mind you taking pictures of the scenery of your costumes. It was yeah, it was fantastic. So, which characters did you play? In that one, I was just a minotaur. I was pretty much the only blonde minotaur. Fantastic. If you can give them that that characteristic. I remember the photo of the uh, of you as the blonde minotaur, and that looked amazing. Basically, the scenes that I was involved in okay. was uh, spring was coming to Narnia. So before and during the the big major battle at the end. I see. Okay. So you were a minotaur, you were a blonde minotaur. How did you cope with the really heavy costume? I did have the experience of being an Urukai, of wearing those costumes, so I knew what it was like. The hardest part of it was probably you've got this big minotaur head on and all you can see out of is this little mouth about uh, 15 centimetres in front of your face. So you're, you're looking down through this very small mouth hole and of course you, you, you want to look down because you're running around in the mountains. But as a minotaur, you have to keep your head up. So instead you've got your head up, you're looking out at the bottom of your eyes through this little mouth hole <laughs> you've got no idea where you're, where you're running basic rule of thumb is if you fall down you're dead we'll see you in the arrows later <laughs> I'm just getting this image of a lot of minotaurs being sort of gently led to the craft table or being put into their positions that's exactly what it was um, like do you have any particular anecdotes from or any favourite memories from Lion the Witch and Order you'd like to share we were filming Spring Coming to Narnia and we were filming down the, the Southern Alps in summer and it actually snowed overnight so it had to change all the perspectives of shooting otherwise the snow levels were just too low to compare to what they had previously shot so that was I mean, beautiful beautiful but it delayed oh, the shooting for by half a day <laughs> there was another time we had to uh, we were flown in helicopter to the location oh, are you in costume for that for, but in the helicopter yeah so you've got these big bulky costumes mm-hmm. you're squeezing into a helicopter and you've got bits sticking out everywhere um, the only other major <laughs> well the only other story that I have from that is I got rudely woken up by the the girl who plays uh, Lucy, because they were playing cricket and she smacked the tennis ball and it hit me in the face. <laughs> she was very apologetic, but it was a good shot. Listen, Robbie, thank you very much. We always really appreciate these little insights. You're welcome. So that was Robbie. Phil, what did you think? Oh, I always like hearing from that guy. He's got so much great experience. I want to be a minotaur. Wouldn't that be the most fun experience? Maybe not getting hit in the face. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, awesome. being attacked by the leading lady with a cricket ball is yeah. uh, it's just one of the things you have to deal with. It's all in a day's work, isn't it, for a, uh, for yeah. a minute? And who doesn't love a minotaur? We always wonder whether our kid was going to be a minotaur because obviously uh, mythical beasts run in my family. So ah, Claire wasn't playing. She said, it's fine, honey. We'll just set a labyrinth up in the garden. He can run around in there. You know. <laughs> I know one person who doesn't like it. You think his name's Theseus? He hates yeah. that guy. Yeah. Let's crack on to the section that we all love. Finding the faith in the film. Every time. More exuberant. Just to give you an idea, our main focus for this podcast will be The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. But if we make passing references to other texts, please forgive us. Another thing to point out is this is not an exhaustive list of parallels. This is just the things that jumped out at me. Because if we tried to mention everyone, we would literally be here all night. We talked in our very first episode about the difference between allegory and applicability. One thing that grabbed me is that whilst Narnia is often labelled as an allegory, Aslan himself is not strictly an allegorical character. According to the author, Aslan is not an allegorical portrayal of Christ, but rather a suppositional incarnation of Christ himself. Have you ever heard that phrase, suppositional incarnation? Has it got anything to do with the word supposed? 
Yeah. Okay. This is then based... I understand yeah. it. I hadn't heard it, though. <laughs> I'd never come across it before. But essentially, it frames the entire Narnia stories as a what-if story. So let me yeah. tell you what C.S. Lewis said himself in one of his later letters. The whole Narnian story is about Christ. I asked myself, supposing that there really was a world like Narnia, and supposing it had, like our world, gone wrong, and supposing Christ wanted to go into that world and save it as he did ours, what might have happened? The stories are my answers. Since Narnia is a world of talking beasts, I thought he would become a talking beast there, as he is a man here. I pictured him becoming a lion there because A, the lion is supposed to be king of the beasts, and B, Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah in the Bible. Been having strange dreams about lions when I began writing this work. The whole series works out like this. Now, how great is that? It makes sense. I, I, love, the, I love the idea that he takes mm. the form of the creatures or rather the beings that he's trying to save. Like, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. It's phenomenal. What it points to is a, a level of inclusivism that Jesus would appear to people as they need him to appear to them and I find that really fascinating. As we talked about the lion in the tribe of Judah, Judah is a particular part of Israel. Do you remember how we talked about Jesus having nicknames for himself and his favourite nickname was the son of man. The lion of the tribe of Judah is another particular nickname just on this line. There are tons of titles related to Jesus and lion of the tribe of Judah is one of the more famous I believe Big J is another one. I can just imagine him in like one of those wagons with the bouncing wheels, you know, like Snoop Dogg. Yeah, but it, it'd be a bouncing donkey. You That's know? the one. That's what I was trying to think of. <laughs> Anyway, when I thought about it in these terms, I thought it was really interesting. And there are some other references to inclusivism later in the series, which unfortunately we don't really have time to go into now. I found out that Aslan is also Turkish for lion, which I thought was a nice touch. Ah. It's not mentioned in this film, but in the books, Aslan is also referred to as the son of the emperor over the sea. This emperor is never actually seen in the film. And this reflects how God the Father is never directly seen by anyone. And I thought that was really interesting. The idea that it would be easy to... um, show Aslan as the big boss but the idea that there's something even greater than him just beyond reach was a really nice particular allegory you know makes sense there's a scene when Peter and the two girls Susan and Lucy both turn up and they meet Aslan for the first time and one of the things that Aslan says is where is your brother the way I've chosen to interpret that is I believe that Aslan genuinely didn't know that he didn't know what had happened to Edmund or anything that makes me think that Aslan is not omniscient he doesn't know everything he can't read people's minds and this links back to something we talked about about how Jesus was completely human he didn't necessarily have tons of special powers he wasn't the full manifestation of God at that point. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course, yeah. In this world, he is completely Mm. one of the beings with all of their flaws and all their things that makes them what would be human. Less flaws, more limitations, you know. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I I don't think flaws, sorry, was the correct word, but limitations definitely make sense. I don't know if you remember, but there's a scene where Susan and Lucy can't sleep and they go out and there's Aslan walking through the woods. They end up walking with him for a while and it's just rem reminiscent of the scene of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is he's there it's quiet it's peaceful and it's that thing we talked about that's become a story trope this idea of a moment of quiet before a big challenge it's a really beautiful scene and I really enjoyed it then when Aslan comes up to the stone table he's surrounded by his enemies and one of the lines the queen says is let him be shaved 
obviously cutting his, his mane off is nothing compared to being killed. But I felt this particular line reminded me of the fact that Jesus was tortured before he was executed. The Romans, not really one for humane executions. They, yeah, historically uh, also, not, not really known for it. Yeah. He was whipped 39 times and he had the crown of thorns jammed onto his head and he probably suffered all many other kinds of physical and sexual abuse at the hands of the Romans at this point before being sent to the cross, which again was one of the most inhumane forms of execution. Like I say, the inclusion of that line, let him be shaved, just made me think about that it wasn't just the death, it was all the indignities heaped upon him on the way. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I did think of the same thing, actually, when I was watching it. What gets me about both that scene in the film and and also in the Bible, it's just the sheer hatred they seem to have Mm. that they sort of exude on him through all these indignities and all this pain they inflict on him before they end his life. It just makes you feel sick. It makes you feel very, very unwell, because I can't imagine, I can't imagine personally hating anything quite that much. Yeah, absolutely. Aslan's death and resurrection is the central allegorical moment where obviously it relates to Jesus dying and and coming back to life. Aslan takes Edmund's place and that represents how Jesus takes our place in terms of taking punishment for our sins and that sort of thing. The stone table cracks. Did that mean anything to you? The only way that it sort of meant something to me is in the sense that he was buried in a cave with a stone in front of it. That's the first thing it made me think of. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you remember us talking about the Holy of Holies? Oh, yeah. Within within the temple, there was different sections you could go to. The most holy place where only the high priest could go to had a a big thick curtain around it. And at the point of Jesus' death, the curtain, the veil is ripped into. And this, I think, is a direct allusion to that particular event. The idea that something cracks, that a particular hold over humanity is broken and that we're set free. It's part of the law of the land, isn't it? That there must be a sacrifice (laughs) to the witch. Any traitors belong to the witch, I think, was the way it was put. Right. I also noticed how it's Susan and Lucy who untie his bonds once he, whilst he's dead. And that reminded me about how women prepare Jesus' body for burial. There seems to be so many times where women play an absolutely crucial role in Jesus' life at different points. And it's something that can often be overlooked is the importance of women specifically in the gospel. I agree. What does deus ex machina mean? Uh, God over machine. Uh, yeah. Or God, uh, God in machine. a box. God from the machine? It would relate to Renaissance theatre, and particularly in Shakespeare's time. So deus ex machina relates to a theatrical technique in Shakespeare's time. If Shakespeare or another kind of writer has written himself into a corner, there's nothing they can do, then all of a sudden a god would turn up and say, no, you stop doing this and you two can get married and everything's fine. The god would be sort of lowered down onto the stage in a little box, hence god in a box. What it relates to now is a solution to a plot that hasn't been foreshadowed in any way whatsoever. And the interesting thing is, God does foreshadowing like nobody's business. In Genesis 3, verses 14 to 15, the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all animals and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So what God 
is saying to the serpent at that point is the son of a woman will crush your head. Sheesh. Which is pretty explicitly referring to Jesus. It's saying he will crush your head, you will strike his heel. Now obviously striking somebody's heel sucks, but crushing the head is that much worse. I'll take the heel. Yeah, it relates to how Satan kills Jesus, but Jesus destroys Satan completely. I mean, and, yeah, there's a difference between being killed and being completely yeah. obliterated. <laughs> exactly. This is just the first of many examples of these kind of references where Jesus is saying things like, the temple should be destroyed and I'll build it back three days later. How can I put this? This is really good storytelling. So my point is simply that God the Father is really quite a better writer than C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it wouldn't have gone down in history as one of the greatest stories ever told. Yeah, he, uh, he had he's yeah. had some time to work on it. I want to talk about the witch briefly. The witch is presented as being really beautiful, isn't she? Yeah, she's evil looking but flawless. Mm. Yeah, evil looking but flawless. And now, as far as I can remember, this is one of the earliest depictions I can think of of an evil witch being depicted as beautiful. Obviously, there's Glinda the Good Witch in Wizard of Oz, but crucially, she's a good witch. I I can't think of at least any earlier examples of evil being presented as being this attractive this early and obviously this relates to the idea that sin is appealing evil is attractive it's not like somebody comes and says ah hello pleased to meet you i'll be your bad guy for this evening and we'll be doing some bad stuff and i'll be bringing to destroy you <laughs> i just like the idea he comes and says like hello there i am your bad guy for the evening this is your bad guy check card you have five bad guy moments <laughs> so yeah it just links this idea that evil kind of comes at you sideways it sidles up to you it looks attractive and it's ultimately going to kill you but you don't realize that in the first instance and i just thought that was a really interesting touch that you put in there yeah 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 can you remember when they're in mr and mrs beaver's house at side point mr and mrs beaver are absolute relationship goals oh they Those, are og yeah. relationship goals right there like they just smash it and i swear they must have put more of that in in the film because i don't remember them being this good in the in the books there's a particular line where when father christmas arrives mr beaver says i'll go and look you stay here you're too valuable to narnia and then mrs beaver says but so are you beaver and he says oh thanks dear <laughs> so cute anyway when the children first hear the prophecy they are completely disbelieving and this links in with something you see in christian circles i don't want to say on a regular basis but regular enough the sense of being called to something the first example i can think of is my wife claire had a really good job in publishing down south doing something she wanted to do and she felt an absolute conviction to give up that job and come and work as an intern for a charity called hope for justice which is yeah. an anti-trafficking organization so and there are lots of examples of christians throughout history who feel these calls to be part of certain things or to use a christianese term to minister to certain people yeah and there are so many people who reject it you know say that is not for me i'm <laughs> not going there i'm not doing this and the most famous example i can think of is the story of jonah do you know that one if I said Jonah and the whale. I've okay. heard of it. So the idea is that Jonah um, is told by God, go to this city, talk to these people. Jonah's like, nah. And he basically <laughs> just tries tries to escape from God. He goes on a ship. He gets subsequently thrown off 
there's a storm and then he's swallowed by a big fish which let's be honest guys can we all just agree that it was a whale it's not yeah. like he was swallowed by a trout you know <laughs> yeah found the interesting thing that the children don't believe that it's that it could possibly be them in the first instance and that is something i think a lot of people can relate to the idea of don't send me you've got to send somebody more qualified or more holy or more brave or something like that oh it's, absolutely it's a universal thing completely that sense of i can't be good enough it can't possibly be relating to me yeah another thing i wanted to mention is how they don't earn their thrones it's not like they're given they're made kings and queens of narnia as a reward for their actions in battle we're just told explicitly there's going to be four children two sons of adam two daughters of eve and they're going to be on the thrones at care Parabel. they don't earn it it's a birthright do you know what i mean yeah that links in really closely to salvation there are millions of people out there thinking you've got to do something to be saved you've got to you've got to do good things you've got to act in a certain way to be saved but god's sitting there going there is nothing you could do to make me love you more you know jesus is exactly the kind of person who would sort of say i love you just the way you are you know this obviously doesn't mean that they do nothing that they just sit around and go okay well can i have my throne now please They do fight for Aslan, but it's it's not to earn his love. It's because serving someone is what you do when you love them. It's an indicator, but it's not evidence in and of itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It is again it's just there isn't it if you make your wife dinner that's the sort of thing you do if you love somebody but it's yeah. not evidence in and of itself you couldn't say well i love you because i gave you a meal you know yeah no i um, made you a meal because i love you exactly it's, and it's that thing it's getting it the right way around you know yes. and this links in with a, uh, a particular phrase from one of the apostles james james two seventeen, where he says something to the effect of faith that works is dead so doing stuff for god isn't what makes you a christian but it's the sort of thing you do when you are a christian if that makes sense yeah yeah that makes sense from how i understand it it's part of Mm. your life as a christian and how you follow the guidelines that are set in front of you yeah i always link it to to being in love you know just because you do something for somebody doesn't mean that you love them but if you love someone you do stuff for them i completely get that when the queen is killed by aslan in the final battle aslan says really clearly it is finished does that line mean anything to you it is finished i don't know why i said it in alpertine's voice yeah that's okay i guess not so i think that's an addition by the film i'm not sure if that is in the original text but it does link quite closely with john 19 29 to 30 so jesus is hanging up on the cross and some of the soldiers kind of take pity on him and they want to sort of give him something to drink you with me yeah from verse 29 it says a jar of wine vinegar was there so they spoke soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to his lips when he had received the drink jesus said it is finished with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit so the words it is finished are the last words jesus utters before he dies I remember that scene as well because I remember them for some reason having this really vivid image of them having a sponge on a really long pole and just sort of feeding him wine and I always thought they fed him vinegar as well and I was like why the hell would they feed him vinegar? That's horrible. (laughs) This is one of the things I like about Jesus is that he's not one for flowery prose you know he says things in the most simple terms and most to get his point across and it is finished really cuts the point. For me personally it felt a little on the nose in the film it felt a little bit like yeah okay yeah we get it but there we go you know it's just like andrew adamson's there like god 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 like that yeah exactly it's like all right i'm good i i understand we get it it, guys you know yeah (laughs) there was just two little things i wanted to talk about and it's 
Edmund, who betrays his brother and sister, and Mr. Tumnus, who obviously betrays Lucy. And I wanted to look at the way that they are forgiven completely. And they are forgiven so quickly and with no ill will after it. Have you ever heard that phrase where somebody says, well, I forgive, but I don't forget? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That is not forgiveness. If you're still holding on to the thing that a person did to you, then that's not forgiveness. One of the things, and again, we might be sort of drifting into sort of Christian headcanon. I don't know if there's proof for this, but I think there's a belief that once a sin is forgiven, Jesus literally can't remember it. That he's like, what? what's in it's it's gone wow. you said you said you're sorry i forgave you and then we moved on because if you love somebody you will forgive them pretty much anything won't you i mean yeah it's hard to stay mad at somebody that you care deeply for exactly and this makes me think about the apostle judas so famously judas is the one that sells out jesus to the romans uh, for 30 pieces of silver and he's then overcome with guilt that he actually hangs himself for it yeah. okay now if you're overcome with guilt about something then that person must have meant something to you right i mean the only times i've ever felt so overcome with guilt is when i've done something to somebody else that i shouldn't have done either by accident or on purpose Mm. and been like wow i should never have done that and it's worse when you've done to someone that you really love isn't it oh absolutely you just think what am i gonna do now yeah so this for me is an example of judas's sincerity of his feelings towards jesus and if i could have been there if i could go back two thousand years i'd go there to that field where he he hangs himself and i'd say just hang on. If you could if you could just hang on a few days, yeah. everything's going to be okay, you know? Because like I say, we like to demonize Judas because we're like a bad guy. But Jesus' death was foretold centuries beforehand. Judas was effectively just playing a role here. And this is the thing that breaks my heart because I know that Jesus would have absolutely forgiven him. He forgave Peter when Peter, who was meant to be his like biggest fan, basically denies him three times and says, that guy's nothing to do with me. And it breaks my heart because as I say, if Judas had just held on, then we would have had a different story about how to forgive people even when they betrayed you in the worst possible way. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, you know? Through all this as well, I've got to say, Jesus sounds like the soundest bloke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, just, I don't know why that popped in my head, but I could just imagine him sort of sat in the corner of a room, say an apostle comes in and just goes, "Oh, I'm really sorry. I, I did this thing," and and he's just there, just eating like chips and dip. Jesus is just kind of like, "Yeah, it's, mate, it's fine. Like, I've literally forgotten about. Do you want some Doritos? You know, just, just got that. That's in my head. Like, just." <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? (laughs) That is brilliant. That is Phil Headcanon, and I love that. I think that's brilliant. I tell you what, mate, Phil Headcanon is a real weird place, but I kind of like it. The last thing I wanted to talk about is this phrase that we hear right at the end, where we're told Aslan is not a tame lion. And this is a point that I think young Christians in particular have to sort of really hone in on. And it's something that I learned at Christian Union back in Bangor, believe it or not. We had one speaker come in, and he said, Jesus 
Jesus isn't your mate. He's your friend, but he's not your mate. And what I took from that is that you can't take him for granted. He is your friend. He does love you. But at the same time, he is God. He is your Lord and all the rest of it. And you have to treat him with the appropriate level of respect. He's not a genie. He's not going to do whatever you want him to do. Does that make sense? It sort of reminds me of the relationship most people have with their parents. I was always brought up with such a, a sense of, look, you're the son. I'm the father or I'm the mother. We, we can be together. We're family. But at the end of the day, like, you've got to give me respect. You can't, you, there's certain yeah. things we can't joke about. There's certain things we can't take lightly. There's certain things that you can't say to me because it would be disrespectful. You've just hit the nail on the head there. That is the perfect metaphor for a relationship with God is that he loves you deeply. But at the same time, he's like a parent. There's certain things you can't do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. When you put it in that kind of respect, mm. then yeah, I understand. Yeah, it's not a tame lion. The last thing I think I wanted to say was... Chronicles of Narnia gets so weighed down, I think, by being a quote-unquote Christian text. And people disparage it as a result. And I think what I have to say is, particularly to Christian groups, don't weaponize it. Just let children enjoy this story for what it is. And when they find out about it on their own, that's brilliant. But they will enjoy the parallels that much more when they find it out on their own, rather than having it spoon-fed to them. Yeah, if someone had forced it down my throat, especially as a kid, I'd have been like, mm. no, it's not. I absolutely love these stories. I adore them and I think if I had had them thrust upon me then I wouldn't appreciate them in the same way so yeah. just let children just enjoy these stories I've been Chronicles of Narnia have been part of my life for as long as I could remember and when I found out at 14 that Aslan was a representation of Jesus it was like <gasps> imagine small Giles just kind of just there like well that's amazing because <laughs> I imagine you've got as well just <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, if that's what works for you, Sunshine, then that's what happens. It certainly okay? does. <laughs> it brings me much joy. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes our Finding the Faith in the Film section. We have had some pretty awesome reviews. My friend Emma Barkley Watt made a comment on one of our posts. She says, I highly recommend a listen. Glorious and infectiously enthusiastic. Wonderfully and entertainingly nerdy and delightfully and engagingly funny. I'm off to reread the Harry Potter series. I frankly <laughs> want that written up on a banner because I thought that was delightful. I, I, and I, I like want that as like a sticker on my window. Wonderfully and entertainingly nerdy. I will take that. 100% give me the t-shirt. We're going to have our, a shameless plug now as phil and i have mentioned a few times we're filmmakers and our most recent short film reset is pretty much done we're going to do something we've never done before we're going to do some test screenings for it as much as we would love to fit everybody into our room and have them talk about our film we can't do that so we're going to do some virtual test screenings and what would work really well is if it came from people who we didn't really know super well who didn't have that much of a connection to us so if you are interested in seeing our film it is 20 minutes long actually it is 19 minutes and 55 seconds long that i got it down yeah, as he... tight as i could if you would be happy to get a link to watch our film and give us some feedback on it we would be your best friends for life if you would like to get involved then please contact us over facebook or instagram our next and final episode of this series is the one you've all been waiting for guys the one that everybody thinks about when they think god and film we're doing the matrix it's going to be awesome i'm I've got so an, excited we've got a fantastic guest for it and also <laughs> it's going to be our last one for a while at least yeah. so why don't you join us then phil have you enjoyed yourself i've got to say i've never seen the lion the witch in the wardrobe before we did this 
this podcast. I sort of missed it. Right. So I really enjoyed having the opportunity to watch it and sort of relive a little bit of my childhood memories. That is fantastic. And I've had a great time talking to you guys. See you next week. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact checking by Christina Stenard Good. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Tech support from Claire Goff. Heresy editing by Nick Matthews. Gordon Film is a desk production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case just tell Phil by sending a talking horse to Care Paravel.